In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 Lightspeed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired! I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I'm excited to welcome on the show Paul Cody, who is an instructor at the University of Maryland and teaches many classes related to film and English. And we are going to examine the music of The Lion King as it celebrates its 25th anniversary of its original theatrical release this July. So consequently, we're going to look at Hans Zimmer's score, as well as the music and lyric by Elton John and Tim Rice, and explore the impact of the Lion King's music over the past few decades, especially leading up to the new iteration of the film in just a handful of weeks. Before we get into our conversation, a quick word about our sponsor, Donna the Vacationer with Second Star Vacations. When you are ready to book your next trip, might I recommend, Donna, if you're thinking about Lion King and how much you absolutely love the film and want to relive that experience in new ways, a perfect place to visit would be Disney's Animal Kingdom with the Festival of the Lion King show consistently noted as really one of the best live productions in all of Walt Disney World. And Donna specializes in all Disney travel destinations including Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Aulani, Disney Cruise Line Vacations, and Adventures by Disney Guided Tours. Unlike big box travel agencies where you are just another number, Donna is your personal travel consultant. Your needs will always come first. Plus, she is available to you before, during, and after your vacation to help ensure it is everything you dreamed it would be. Best of all, her services are free. For more information, go to secondstarvacations.com or email her at donna at thevacationier.com. Tell her we sent you.
In honor of The Lion King's 25th anniversary and the forthcoming new adaptation, it only seems fitting to reflect back on the original 1994 soundtrack and its impact. After all, it represents the highest-selling soundtrack for an animated film in the United States, having sold 5 million copies in 1994 alone. The music also won two Academy Awards for Best Original Song, which was Can You Feel the Love Tonight, and Best Original Score, as well as two Golden Globes for the same categories. Lion King even garnered Grammys for Best Musical Album for Children and Best Instrumental Arrangement Accompanying Vocalist. So joining me today on Notably Disney is Dr. Paul Cote, lecturer of English at University of Maryland. He teaches many classes, among them those related to film and music. And Paul's dissertation was entitled Sonic Movie Memories, Sound, Childhood, and American Cinema, in which he centered some of the content on Disney music. And you may recall on our more recent episode of Notably Disney that we had Courtney and Emily on from Book of the Mouse Club and suggested Paul would be a wonderful guest to talk with about Disney film music. So it's my pleasure when Paul said, oh yeah, I'd be glad to, to come on the show. So with all that said, uh, welcome to Notably Disney, Paul. Hi, uh, thank you. I feel welcome. Well, we have a, a lot to cover today as we dive right into the music of The Lion King, but I'm hoping you could first share with listeners a little bit about your interest in and research on Disney music and what your work entails as a faculty member. Sure. Um, when I decided to do some work on Disney music, it was in part because I've been interested in ways that adults sort of re-engage with music from childhood, especially in films, the way that directors like Steven Spielberg or Wes Anderson will make movies that are in theory for adult audiences, but also seemingly steeped with song cues or pieces of score or, or uh, performance styles that are taken directly from cartoons, from Disney films, from peanut specials, etc. And so when I was investigating why this happens, it made sense to go to the source because you can't really talk about children's media in the 20th century without Disney. He sort of, or if not he, then the studio sort of invents that whole trope, the way that you can use romantic music and create emotional associations and sometimes create associations so powerful that the audience won't even notice some darker edges around the corners, which I don't necessarily think The Lion King does, but I think that did become their sort of MO in the 50s especially. So could you maybe share a little bit about the classes that you teach at University of Maryland? Because I understand some are related to film and Disney has even been incorporated into your your repertoire. Sure. Uh, I taught a class a few years ago called the Disney Studio and the Animation Industry. And that was about the way that Disney as a force for animation that the past roughly almost 100 years, getting close to 100 years of animation history in the United States at least, have been defined by this sort of pivot where Disney will do something and a new studio will come and react against that or maybe copy it or maybe both copy it and react against it, at which point Disney turns around and tries to imitate that. And so it was tracing the way that we go from Mickey Mouse to the Fleischer Studios to Snow White to Warner Brothers and UPA and that kind of push and pull that 
to me makes the that history so interesting. Um, I've also I taught classes about animation more globally, in which Disney does come up as well. I just recently finished a class about studios like Disney after their primary author figure dies um, and what happens when a figure like Walt Disney or Jim Henson or Charles Schultz, who's been so widely associated with fictional characters, is gone, but there's still an impetus to keep on making new works with those characters and ways in which the politics and the fan uh, reactions and the and the studio capitalist reactions, all different ways that we decide what the core of these characters is supposed to be based on this person who's not there anymore. That sounds absolutely fascinating because there are so many of those pivotal figures in society and pop culture who seem like that they're timeless even beyond when, per your point, when the principal figure passes away. Absolutely. Although one thing that was sobering for that last class was that people that I assumed were timeless, uh, my students who are you know, younger than me, like, you know, I'm in my mid-30s, they're in their early 20s, some of them had never seen a Muppet movie until we looked at Jim Henson. Some of them didn't even realize that the Sesame Street characters were created by Jim Henson. And that's just, and in many cases, things that I think for us, you assume are going to be there forever, or at least long after you're gone, you know, the, the world changes, and certain childhood icons do fade with time. Disney seems like it will be around for a while, though. That's the one outlier where somehow Snow White was made in the 30s, and yet they've all still seen it. Well, I would say it's a travesty for anybody who has not seen the Muppet movie. That's definitely a classic. So moving right along to our uh, main topic, uh, The Lion King, to, to what degree has that film or any of its different facets surfaced in your classes you know somehow we've never actually addressed that particular film um i will sometimes when i'm teaching intro to film studies use the circle of life um simba getting held over the the mountaintop uh, moment to show how various editing principles from um eisensteinian montage are still in disney films but in terms of the film itself Every time I've covered the Renaissance, it's always made more sense to do a different film, um, Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin. Had the most recent remake been out when I taught this last class, that might have been different. Um, but weirdly, and then now that I say that out loud, I will sometimes, when I'm teaching, especially a Answer to Film Studies course, I'll ask the students as a sort of icebreaker, I talk about the first film that really had a big emotional impact on them, which I like more than your favorite film, because that kind of tells me where they first started really feeling about movies. And The Lion King has remains um, for the past, you know, at least six, seven years. It's been the movie they most frequently cite. So there is something in that film more so, I think, than the other Disney Renaissance films that really like hits a chord with people even today. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt that it's impactful, especially for a certain generation. And, you know, many of today's freshman college students, for instance, probably weren't even born when when the film actually came out 25 years ago. (laughs) So it's always interesting to see that (laughs) dynamic in play. But let me ask you, Paul, can you maybe travel back in time and, and think of when you were first exposed to The Lion King and 
and what impact, if any, it had on you? Yeah, I was a kid when it came out. Um, I'm trying to think of how old I would have been. I guess 94, that would have made me maybe 10? I Don't ask me to do math. Um, young enough that it was a, um, a big deal. Seeing that movie in, in a movie theater was a big event. Even though, for some reason, the trailer for that movie, um, it gives away the entire plot, like, you know, up to Simba seeing his dead father speak to him. So there weren't really any surprises. <laughs> but the, I think the drama of that film, I'm not sure if any of us were expecting it because Aladdin is so fun. And Beauty and the Beast has some heaviness to it, but nothing along the lines of you know, fratricide <laughs> and this sort of really big, hard-on-the-sleeves emotional uh, turmoil, which is laced with comedy. But, um, yeah, we collected the, the the cards from Burger King. We watched the movie over and over again. I had the, the Sega game, which was bizarrely faithful to the movie, like frame by frame almost. Um, it was a big deal when I was a kid, and I guess it never stopped being a big deal. How about the music? In, in what ways did it kind of enter your consciousness as being memorable or kind of part of your listening routine, if at all? Sure. Um, you know what's interesting? The, the songs, I think, they were everywhere. They were inescapable. It's only really... I think fairly recently as an adult, I've appreciated how well arranged and how powerful the best ones are. The score, I think, I listened to film music from a pretty early age. I was a big um, Danny Elfman fan. I still am. Um, and I got into a lot of people through him, like Bernard Herrmann and, and um, Nicholas Raja and Morricone, etc. I was never as big into Zimmer early on, but... The Lion King score, I learned it almost by heart to a large extent because that video game, that for I think it was for the Sega and for the Super Nintendo, but watching it last night uh, really reaffirmed that for me. Not only did they license the music from the songs from the film, but score pieces, even very minor score pieces uh, would just play on a loop in that game. So, you know, music from the scene where Scar tells the lionesses that he's taking over and the hyenas walk in. I don't think it's anybody's most, you know, treasured cue from that film, but I realized, oh, I know this by heart because I heard it over and over and over again through the chiptunes of Sega Genesis. So all of this stuff is so firmly embedded in my subconscious. That's such a fascinating and powerful illustration of how music can really become fixed in our memories you know if they're incorporated into video game music like you're saying on that endless loop i you know i think back to even the computer game um like the cd-rom i remember like the animated storybook and it i mm -hmm. believe it had some of the same musical cues and for me that was the the mechanism i used to kind of channel that love for Lion King beyond the film context. So it's pretty funny in that regard. What's I think, now that I'm thinking of it, especially weird is that now I my memories of playing that game, it's a lighthearted game. Like you're controlling a little animated Simba, you're jumping on bugs and whatnot. It's very well animated. It's fun and exciting. But it would make me feel so sad. <laughs> and I think it's because it's just taking... It's a very sad score. There's very 
little in that score that isn't melancholy in some way, even in the early scenes. And so it's this weird cognitive dissonance of controlling this cute little cartoon lion hopping around, collecting power-ups, while this melancholy dirge just plays over and over again in the background. It's weird how we're, how we're wired that way. Absolutely. And I think we have a, a lot of different facets to explore as it pertains to the score of The Lion King. But I think first, perhaps we can dive into the songs. And for those of you who are familiar with the the songs in the movie there are five of them and the music was by elton john with lion king representing his first venture for disney and lyric by tim rice who those of us who love aladdin know was his big deal for disney um he kind of stepped in once uh, howard ashman unexpectedly passed away and so in lion king we have five original songs circle of life i just can't wait to be king be prepared Hakuna Matata, and Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And arguably each is very monumental and impactful in different ways. So I'm wondering if we can maybe just briefly talk about each, starting with Circle of Life. When you hear those opening cues by the Asvenya. Yeah, the Levo M, uh, the South African chants. It's it's almost it's almost like the Jaws music, where a few notes can totally take you to that time and place. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts of Circle of Life? Oh yeah, it's what's interesting is that if you listen to the Elton John version on the album, which I I have to assume is pretty close to his demo, it's fine, but it's not an especially interesting song on its own. It's got a nice melody, um, but it's it's very much you know later period Elton John. I think it's really, it's it's the it's Levo M and I guess Zimmer's team, I think Mark Mancina did the bulk of the arranging that really transforms something that's pretty good to something extraordinary. Cause it's just the way it builds, the way like the the percussion and the, the choir, which just sort of rises under the lyrics sometimes. And it's just so, you know, there, there's a reason that scene is so iconic. Um, and you probably know this, but apparently The Lion King was not expected to do very well. It was sort of treated as the the underdog. Pocahontas was their big project. But yeah. they when they released the trailer that was just the Circle of Life sequence, um, Jaws dropped. And, and everything, all the priorities were suddenly different because it became clear what an extraordinary film this was going to be. Yes, absolutely. And it really represented such a counterpoint to what Disney was producing at the time where more of these like classic Broadway style numbers, whether it's a, a, a be our guest or even under the sea in its own way. And here you have the Lion King, which is depicting one for one animals in, in Africa as opposed to human figures, but also the, the notion of African music and having that influence. Yeah, and it's it's um it's pretty unprecedented in that sense. In that, like you said, like we had that run of Broadway style musicals, which by itself was something of a departure by on its own, um, as opposed to the more standard Tin Pan Alley Disney musicals that had been fairly standard, even well past the point where that style was no longer in favor anywhere else. Um, Oliver and Company is not liar. Oliver and Company. In many ways, I think we can probably look mm, at that now and see where it was predicting things. But, um, but, 
but to just so firmly turn away, like you were saying, from something that people was like recognize as this is what a cartoon musical sounds like into something that had a popularity, like the world music craze in the nineties, there was a precedent for it, but not in a cartoon, not in a Disney cartoon. And I'm not sure, like, there's a little bit, I'm not sure how much of an issue it is that it's very, this is South African music and it's a film set in Kenya and the extent to which the film seems to think those are interchangeable. I'm not sure if anyone's bothered by that. Um, but as a pure, as pure affect, it's really something extraordinary. I, I totally agree. And I, I also would uh, echo what you're noting as far as the Elton John version, the where he's singing it is not nearly as strong as Carmen Twilley and Lebo M, um, the, the main performers in the actual film version. I feel like that conveys, and, and mind you, the lyrics are, are quite different too in the Elton John version that um, is heard in the end credits. So it's, it's interesting because often with songs, we at least Disney songs of that era, there would be a pop version, but yet the it would be very similar as opposed to um, this case where they're vastly different. Right. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize the Circle of Life lyrics were also different. I knew the, the Can You Feel the Love Tonight lyrics were. Did um, Tim Rice do both versions? Yeah, I'm pretty inclined to think that is the case. But yeah, the, the lyrics are vastly different. So I'll pull up an example of the Elton John version. So like some of the lyrics include some say eat or be eaten, some say live and let live, but all are agreed as they join the stampede, you should never take more than you give. That's nowhere near as strong as what's in the movie. Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe, or maybe that's not fair, because one's burned into my head, the other is like fresh, and it's not set to that legal M music, but it's, I understand why those versions exist. I understand why Elton John would want to have his own take on these songs to go platinum but it's interesting that you would assume those would be the more popular versions but i was at karaoke um with some friends a couple months back and two of my friends wanted to sing can you feel the love tonight and they were so angry when they realized it was elton john's version um because even though the disney you know version is is full of weird you know, character asides and whatnot, it's so much more iconic. It's so much more interesting. It's so much more satisfying to sing it for that matter. It makes me think back to with Hercules, you have Go the Distance in the film. It's uh, Roger Bart singing uh, as young Hercules, but then the Michael Bolton version is what most people familiarize, are familiarized with. It's nearly twice as long and, and very poppy, much like Elton John's version. Huh. Yeah, that makes sense. So Circle of Life is definitely a, a complex song in that regard because they, they are vastly different. But I think in terms of, per your point, like the trailer, which or one of the tra trailers, I should say, which featured the entire opening sequence, really made a case that the expectations are ridiculously high for this totally new departure in the world of Disney animation. And we have Circle of Life to thank for that. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's really, I'm trying to think of another Disney film that came after that even comes close to that sort of style of filmmaking. I can't really think of one. I guess Brother Bear to a very minor extent, but um, 
in terms of just going all in on the sort of Shakespearean drama um, set in this mythic animal you know, universe, it, they never really went back to that well. Well, and perhaps it's very appropriate that they haven't because they know that they couldn't top it in terms of right. scale and, and depth. And that's why we have a new iteration of Lion King, because in that case, they can return to a common source. Right. Oh, boy. <laughs> so and, and we'll briefly uh, touch on that toward the end but uh, sure. the second the second main song in the film is the very upbeat rock and roll i just can't wait to be king any specific thoughts you have on this really exhilarating just makes you feel good type song yeah it's a really <laughs> excuse me it's really catchy um i think it's another instance where if I hear it on its own, it doesn't really... If I, Because it's trying to be the, this movie's version of Under the Sea, or Friend Like Me, it seems to me. The big, fun showstopper. It's not really too tied to the story, but it's still the big takeaway. And it's fun. I find that watching the film, I'm more interested in... It's more fun because the, the images are so exciting, it's so well edited, it's so well styled. Yes. It's this weird departure. The movie has set this you know, very traditional Disney hyper-realism landscape, and then out of nowhere we're in this bright, abstract um, African art style. And I think the music really works very well with that. I don't know that the song itself is one that I would... I don't tend to like pull for it when I'm like you no know, turning that soundtrack on, um, but maybe that's because it's competing with so many like you no know, just grandstanding. Circle of Life is so it's unique, whereas Can't Wait to Be King seems like a, a version of a song we've heard before, at least for me. I can I can definitely see it. For me, it's it's actually the probably the song from the lion king that i listen to most frequently but that's because yeah. that's because it's on my disney pump it up pr playlist for those songs okay. that <laughs> just get you set for the day so like if if you're Not familiar with yeah yeah <laughs> so uh like if you're familiar with the goofy movie that just has some awesome oh yeah, yeah, yeah songs yeah. and i kind of see this in the same vein yeah the the songs from a goofy movie had they been released as actual songs they would have been platinum hits i think absolutely so and just so listeners are familiar with different ways in which they can see the songs in context a, a great representation of i just can't wait to be king is in the mickey's philhar magic attraction uh that first debuted in walt disney world you have a 3d version a computer animated version i should say of simba and all of those characters in that sequence so it's a, a really fun and uh, fresh take on the material but perhaps the the darkest song in the film comes from scar which is be prepared uh thoughts on this villain song love it love it so much it's so that's the one that gets stuck in my head it's, i already i think i tend to think villain songs in kids movies are usually sometimes they're the only good songs sometimes they're at least like the best songs there's just something about there's never any sentiment, there's never any like no fear that the song is going to go into anything saccharine or or hokey. It's just like you can tell it's every 
every person writing for a kids movie who wishes they were writing actual rock songs gets to indulge in that inner bad boy and i think that uh, be prepared is sort of the the pinnacle of what you can do with that it's it's so it's funny it's weirdly funny the lyrics are actually like if you actually pay attention to them they're mostly just cheap insults and weird you know yas queen like you no know, flourishes um but the melody, and I'll give Elton John credit for that. It's not just the arrangement. It's a great melody. Um, Jeremy Irons sings it. Well, Jeremy Irons sings his half of it, at least, so, like, perfectly. The I don't really know why it suddenly goes Triumph of the Will, um, Nazi goose-stepping in the bridge. <laughs> I don't think yeah. it really earns that particular uh, metaphor. But as a sheer powerhouse, I think that... Anyone who sings that on Broadway must be so, so happy to get to be the guy who gets to sing Be Prepared. Absolutely. It's, it, it almost makes me think of how um, with Aladdin, Jafar doesn't necessarily get his song, although he has a uh, almost like a reprise of uh, Prince Ali, where it's kind of in a dastardly way. But this is like what I would see Jafar singing because right. of that notion of just like just seething evil and when you take one look at scar you know obviously he's a, a baddie but i think the the animation style for this is also um just very it's it's very striking because it a lot of dark colors as as one could imagine but i feel like the the tone is so well conveyed and particularly because of it following i just can't wait to be king which is a, a total contrast yeah. Oh, and those, those, it's very expressionistic in its design too, which is not, I think, what, it's another great departure because the movie is set in this very realistic environment. And then suddenly we've got green light coming out of the volcano for some reason. Um, mountains moving. It's just the space keeps on shifting and contracting. It starts off and they're in this very narrow um, little gulch. And then when he's got his, his hyena stormtroopers marching, and it's like this vast military field. It's it's so creative and so playful. Um, it must have been, not to discount the labor involved, but it must have been so freeing for the animators to just have a chance to go and indulge all of those you know bizarre ideas. Well, and I think, too, this this is the song that perhaps best translates to the stage production version because of the, the sequence. And, and like you're saying, you know, like all, all these structures moving around, like when you see it, if, if folks see it on stage, you can clearly see how perhaps the animators were thinking this will really nicely translate because there is that just epic value to it, but with a certain sensibility of how this could translate to a, a physical form. Yeah, I can see that. It's almost like, because he's on a stage towards the end. Like, he's on this elevated platform. It really seems like um, the sort of thing that, obviously, it's more extreme. It's a cartoon, but I could see the designers going, having a field day with that. That must be, that must be so exhilarating. Um, they're apparently not going to have the song in the remake, which I have to admit, maybe halves my interest in the remake, but... I also can't imagine how you can have photorealistic lions and hyenas doing this sort of production. It almost, maybe they realize it would be impossible for it to have any sort of coherence. 
Yeah, I'll be interested. Um, the The latest piece of news I saw is that it actually will be featured in the film. Although, oh, really? Okay. Well, I think some initial reports perhaps indicated otherwise, but I think it, it's my understanding, at least as of uh, May when we're recording, that that is the case. So hopefully. Oh, wow. I I had heard the podcast Blank Check, I think, when their Dumbo episode, they they claimed that it was going to be not in the not in the film. I hope they were using bad information. I hope that they changed their or that the film changed its mind because even if it makes me angry <laughs> to see what they do with it, I'm still just you have to wonder what that would look like, right? You have to wonder what a photorealistic lion singing this song, how that could possibly make any sense. Gotcha, gotcha. And as we're talking, because I want to make sure with listeners that we are reporting to you the most recent news. So uh, Entertainment Weekly reports that um, based on what John Favreau, the director of the new iteration, the film said that, in fact, the, the, the tune will be featured, but there are no specifics in what ways. So to some degree, it will manifest in the 2019 version that I guess is reassuring. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I hope if they do it, they go all out. Um, I hope it's not like his Jungle Book where the songs are there, but they're sort of, you know, the the trust in me is an orchestral motif and not an actual song. I hope that they just go with it if they're going to do it, because that that will make me want to see the film despite my better judgment. Gotcha, gotcha, I agree. And, you know, I think those are tough calls for for the filmmakers to make. So a perfect illustration of this is the live action version of Beauty and the Beast in which really there's, other than the songs that were in the original 1991 film, none of the Broadway songs translated over, although Home, which was a song just by Bell, actually comes to surface in solely instrumental form. So uh, it's always interesting to see how these pieces are reinvented. But... Uh, Another popular song in Lion King is that earworm that many of us cannot get out of our heads, and that is Hakuna Matata. Uh, <laughs> any thoughts on this song, Paul? Um, I think if it was possible for me to wipe my memory and hear it for the first time, I'd probably find it very charming and catchy because it's been beaten into us for so many years. It's hard for me to hear it and not... It's like a doorbell to me at this point. It's it's not it doesn't make me angry, but it's just like white noise. Um, I do think the instrumental break, the bridge when you see Simba growing up, yes, does still really that's still very affecting. I think that's actually in some ways the most affecting part of the song. Um, maybe because it's actually dramatic and, and not just for humor, but I mean the song does its job. It, it gives you this character's philosophy. It. it signals we don't spend that much time simba spends way more time um between meeting timon and pumbaa and meeting nala than any other portion of the film that's like a good how when does the line come of age like after a year that's at least a half a year of his life um that's off camera so that the song can tell us so catchily and cohesively this will be this character's mentality in the space in which you don't meet him. That's fairly, that's, that's actually quite impressive um, that we never question his motivation or wonder what's changed with him 
because all that exposition has been hidden in the song. Yes, I, I agree with you there. And I, and I also think that my favorite portion is the, the soul instrumental section. It's, I, I, I really don't think it's terribly strong as a song. I, I get that it, it drives the narrative and it shows Simba's aging process, which is necessary. And, but I, I don't think it is Elton John best work and i and i don't think it's one of the strongest disney songs either unfortunately but also it's very weirdly structured too because we all know the you know the catchy part but the song has these very weird sort of broadway style storytelling moments that um that happened before the melody's even really been established in your head um it's actually i'm puzzled that that wasn't turned into some sort of pop version because that song seems to most beg for it to cut away like the long backstory about Pumbaa farting and just get to the part everybody apparently wants to hear but I guess you can never really predict um, what's going to sell and what won't yeah I, I do think though it certainly had an impact in terms of being that song that most anybody Ken Hammer is familiar with but the fact that a mere year and a half later when Toy Story debuted and a, a brief snippet of it plays in Andy's car is one of the most meta Disney moments, I That's think. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, and Aladdin has a bunch of those in terms of the genie transforming into different characters, but for mm -hmm. a piece of music to manifest in uh, another film so shortly after it debuted is, is quite a demonstration of, of how, much embedded it was in our society definitely definitely so our last song that was very notable because it it was the one that actually garnered the academy award and the golden globe is can you feel the love tonight thoughts on this romantic love melody it's again i think it's a decent song it's a great arrangement um the the choir, the um, the chanting, like you know, everything that sort of takes what would otherwise be a fairly standard, um, you know, soft rock, late Perry Elton John song, and turns it into something that's you know exhilarating. Um, it's hard for me to really. It's it's a weird term to use for a Disney cartoon, but it's about as close as I think any of these Disney Renaissance films gets to actually suggesting sex and eroticism in one of their love stories i i mean not counting hunchback for different reasons i guess yes, um, that's another story um, but that's that's not that's not like eroticism though that's just that's just a perversion and and sexual repression um but i think a lot of that has to do with the way that the music isn't just it's not just sentiment it's not just um trying to convince you these two people have feelings for each other. It's trying to convey this sort of, um, you know, sense of energy and sense of excitement um, that I guess, I guess the arousal is probably too strong a word to use, but there's a reason that that shot of Nala staring at Simba with weirdly sexual overtones is so iconic now. Um, I think the music has a lot to do with that. I, I think it's a, it's a very standard love song, but it's. Uh, I, I really love the vocalists on this. You, you have a number of different performers who are responsible 
for what's really what maybe a two and a half minute song it's relatively brief but mm-hmm. i i feel like all of the the main singers here are are quite good and just to give credit to them joseph williams sally dorsky nathan lane ernie sabella and crystal edwards so i just feel like all of them collectively even though you have the the timon and puma part chiming in it, it's still a, a very lovely piece yeah, when I said I was sexual and based on the rouse, of course I was talking about Ernie Sabella. That was he's he's that's what reason, everybody thinks of, right? Yeah, he's the reason that this song just gets everybody hot and bothered. Yeah, well, war- warthogs have that effect, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's shift a little bit to talk about Hans Zimmer's score because sure. that obviously is a big part of our connection to Lion King. And so, just listeners are familiar with where we are in terms of time. Hans Zimmer was becoming a very notable film composer with such scores as Rain Man and Days of Thunder and Thelma and Louise, but this was his big breakout score for essentially a family film, if you want to call Lion King in that category. But I want to know from from you, Paul, what what about the, the score by Hans Zimmer strikes you as unique and special if you would use those those words to associate? Oh life. yeah, I think um, I think it remains his. I don't know if it's his most influential work because you could argue that happened in the two thousands. But in terms of his most iconic, in terms of the Zimmer score that most people can probably hum from memory, um, I think it's by far his most um, iconic and probably still I think his best work. Um, it's. It's maybe it's one of the very few Disney scores, possible exception of Mulan, where the score is actually just as arguably even more so iconic in people's memories as the songs are. Typically, that's that's almost never the case. Even something like Pinocchio, which has a gorgeous Lee Harlan score, it's the songs people know. It's the songs that are um, embedded in memory. Whereas I think if most people think of The Lion King, Maybe they think Circle of Life. They probably also think of Simba marching up Pride Rock with that gorgeous choir um, pounding out that melody. Um, it's uh, it's it's very poppy. Um, it's played with an orchestra, but because Zimmer's background is in prog rock, it's got these chord progressions that sound like they could be pop songs, which is probably part of the reason that the Broadway musical just takes some of those melodies verbatim and builds songs around them. Um, it's really... There really, at the time, there wasn't anything like it for a cartoon in terms of straying from the romantic early 20th century symphony orchestra, um, and which almost, in fact, actually, no, all the Disney films up to that point had, even even Oliver and Company has pop songs, but the score is pretty standard. Um, Zimmer's score isn't as crazy as it probably could be, but it's very different from anything that had come before. I would agree. And I think your comparison to Mulan is also totally on point because you have such a masterful composer with Jerry Goldsmith handling the the score for that, which is just absolutely striking. And similarly, Hans Zimmer for Lion King demonstrates such such a range. And the, the word that I always think of to describe Lion King's score is just evocative. Mm -hmm. it is so emotional it's generally yes there are some playful moments here and there but i would say it's extremely dramatic and dark which is also very much a counterpoint to 
to what Alan Menken had handled for Aladdin and Lulmer made there are some darker moments of Beauty and the Beast, but nothing like Lion King. Absolutely. Um, it's very melancholy. Even even before the film, um, even where you wouldn't think it'd be melancholy. Um, re-watching it um, last night, I noticed like moments where uh, Simba and Mufasa have that playful rhyme under the stars. It's a yeah. very joyful moment, but the music is, it's playing that melancholy theme as though it's indicating this is a very temporary memory for these characters. Um, there's a point in the stampede chase, which is a very intensely dramatically scored uh, sequence where Mufasa finally leaps out of the wildebeest and it seems like he's triumphantly, for a second at least, you know, made it, made it, gotten out. And I think most composers would have tried to trick you with that moment and given him a little fanfare or triumphant flourish before, you know, Scar kills him. Um, but Zimmer just plays it dark even there, as though to let you know this is all building to a point. Like, none of this will end well. You, This has been building to this point from the beginning. And I think it's a very strikingly mature way of handling a genre that um, I don't want to say isn't usually treated with mature music, because that's not true, but um, you wouldn't think this was children's film music hearing it by itself, um, especially now, given that so many Zimmer scores for bigger R-rated violent films sounds so much like the lion king <laughs> yeah and you mentioned the scene where mufasa and simba are kind of rolling in the grass under the stars that's for different iterations of the soundtrack the the track that we might think of is like we are all connected um, and you have the african chorus in the background and it's so dramatic and and striking and it and it just it br brings about such intense emotions because you realize the poignance of this moment. And I feel like the score elevates the, the material that, that is already very uh, emotional to begin with. Yeah, it's it brings out, I think, a perspective that wouldn't be immediately obvious with the footage by itself, which I think the best scores do. Like, no, you wouldn't, if you looked at that scene cold, it wouldn't occur to you to play that moment with so much... Um, gravity and with so much, um, you know, sort of ominous melancholy, um, it really takes someone with a, you know, willingness to take that long view and think about what this means to the characters and the long scope of things that I think makes that so, so powerful for so many people. Right. Well, and it reinforces the Shakespearean nature of the whole film plot to begin with. And if you have a score that is playing that up it's only going to be cemented in your memory as wow what what a drama yeah absolutely absolutely are, um go, go ahead. ahead i'm sorry no, go ahead I, I was gonna ask you paul are there is there one particular moment in the score that you feel like is a trademark zimmer moment knowing his lineup of films both preceding and following lion king yeah it's a good question i think there are a number of, of cues that he got hired for this film because um, the filmmakers liked his score for The Power of One, which is a film about a young boy in South Africa who kind of grows through various forms of oppression. Um, I saw it a long time ago as a kid, but it's Zimmer, a lot of the, the kind of the template for The Lion King you can hear in that score. Uh, it also has Lebo M arranging choral 
music. Um, it's in some ways more explicitly um, South African music as opposed to Lion King, which is a little more traditionally narrative film music. Um, in terms of what would linger, it's, I guess, a few things. I don't know if there's one particular cue. Um, maybe the stampede sequence, uh, which I think does a template for the sorts of emotionally charged kind of power anthem driven action cues that you would later hear in films like The Rock and Gladiator and um, Crimson Tide, etc. But I think it's more just there are certain chord progressions that he continues to use that I think he made very popular in this film um, and a what is say the same i think is that a sort of harmonic language that is simple but powerful that seems like it belongs more in pop music than in what was up to that point traditionally considered uh film music and also the way that he blends orchestral with synthetic instruments you know his big sort of innovation was rather than treat keyboards as sort of their own distinct entity like you know um he would mix things so that your synth strings and your actual strings would play at the same time, and they kind of make this echoey reverb sound in which it's hard to tell which is which. Which, I think the one thing that is unfortunate about this score, which you really only notice listening to the album, especially the full album Disney put out a couple of years ago, the full score, the synthesizers you know they haven't all aged as well as i think we might like them to have um there are moments where you can very much hear whatever the 1994 approximation of a string section was on a synthesizer um honestly one reason i'm looking forward to the remake score which he's doing the trailer dropped and while there are many things that i'm not excited about hearing a more modern update of that music with, you know, the full forces of everything that he has been able to do acoustically since then. I'm looking forward to that. Even if the score is just him redoing his first score, but beefing it up with more contemporary samples, that by itself would be, I think, worth hearing. Um, that was kind of a long answer uh, to your question. Is that what you uh, were asking, though? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's um, per what you're saying. It's it's a very complex score, and and to some degree, it is very reflective of the '90s with some of the synth. Uh, I think for me, if there's a particular moment that stands out in the score, it comes from the stampede, and it's the very first 15 seconds of that piece of music. So for the the soundtrack that you're just referencing, the Legacy Collection uh, for the Lion King, uh, Walt Disney Records produced a, a fantastic lineup and really full rich versions of all the different tracks and uh, for the stampede sequence i'd say those first 15 seconds where you hear those growing strings in the background to illustrate the um no, no, needless to say the stampede of wildebeest descending yeah. down yeah. it's just it's so powerful because it grows much like the the size of this herd uh, stampeding down uh, th that area of land. It's absolutely a fantastic demonstration of the score matching the scale and gravity. It's a, it's a great minimalistic way of, of unleashing something that's so that's so monumental. Um, it's, it's I think it's 
you know, in some ways it's it's complex in its narrative construction. It's simple in its sort of musicality, but in a good way, like in a way that I think is really connected with so many listeners. Um, I think what's different at Lion King compared to what he's sort of been doing for the past, you know, 15 years or so, Lion King is a very expertly um, spotted score. Like every, the music is always completely in sync with what's happening emotionally in the moment. Um, it's never too big. When it's surprisingly big, it's not overbearing. Um, the first couple of minutes of the actual film after Circle of Life, he manages to introduce all three principal motifs, the themes that will grow over the course of the film. And they're complete, but they're they're quiet and they're subtle and they just they plant the seeds in your mind and then you get to watch them blossom over the course of the film. He doesn't really score movies that way anymore. Like his his I think, you know, for various reasons, some people would say, you know, for less you could say it's because he's experimenting because he just it's easier to do things this way. He tends to, to my understanding, he'll write 30, 40 minutes of music as a kind of a core body of work for the movie and then he'll kind of allow editors to um use it where they see fit i'm sure he has ideas for where music goes but something like inception or the dark knight movies um often those choices are made by by editors um and as a result i tend to find that when i hear a zimmer score now it seems as though every moment is being treated as though it's the most important moment in the movie um that the music that plays when when Bruce Wayne climbs out of that pit um, is the same music that plays over a throwaway scene when he Batman's fighting some thugs earlier in the film. And I think that it's not necessarily a worse thing. It, there are people who really like those scores too. It's a different way of approaching drama. But I think what's frustrating for somebody like me who just likes that tradition of very dramatically synchronized, emotionally intuitive music that's in lockstep with what the story is doing over a larger narrative arc. It's frustrating to know Zimmer is so good at doing that when he wants to do it. And that for whatever reason, whether industry reasons or personal reasons, he's lost interest in doing that. And good themes can make all the difference in driving the story. And I feel like the, the Mufasa theme in particular, which uh, surfaces again as uh, Simba kind of reflects on his father as an adult and, and sees him uh, in the, in the, in the clouds. It's just, it's, it's very powerful. And I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't, I feel like his scores have changed quite a bit over time, but there are some examples very occasionally where some nice character themes emerge. And uh, I'm not sure if you've ever seen interstellar, but I feel Interstellar like... I like. I do think Interstellar is great. I think it's weirdly mixed, but I think he did do some gorgeous work for that. And yeah, I totally agree. I think it's totally underrated in its uh, as a score, and I think there are some nice themes there that, because of the the notion of the relationship between a parent and, ch and a child, I see those parallels and how how Zimmer harkens back to the idea of that theme from the Lion King in a sense. It might be a weird example, but I, I see no, a certain that, connection there. That makes sense. Yeah. So I, I guess my, my last question for you, and I know you hit on it a little bit is we, we know that John Favreau's Lion King is coming out very shortly. Are, are there 
are there particular elements of the original Lion King score that you would like to see Hans Zimmer repeat and or what would you like to see him bring that's new to the table, new to the conversation? I, that's a good question. I'm not really sure how to answer it because I feel like Hans Zimmer today, the sort of music that he tends to be interested in, I sometimes am interested in on an album. I like listening to the Dunkirk score or the Dark Knight scores by themselves, but I find that they tend to really work against my enjoyment of the movie, or not enjoyment's not the right word, but they they tend to distract me from the films that he works on because they I think they're so um, they're so single-minded in pursuing one idea for two straight hours. And I don't want him to bring that mentality to the Lion King per se. Um, but I guess it wouldn't, there wouldn't be any point in him just literally repeating the score beat for beat from the original film. Um, I'm not sure how he'll walk that line because if anybody has the power to do his own thing, it's him. Um, I also don't know that there's anything he could do to, um, compete with people's you know very fierce nostalgia for that film like out of all the films in the renaissance it's the one that i think people are going to have the most emotional investment on so it may be that he just wisely doesn't mess with what he knows people want right there's i feel like there's no way of pleasing everyone in this because because it is such an iconic film and score you're going to irritate somebody if you take risks or if you stick too closely to the original material. Yeah. Um, he also has to work with, you know, unfortunately, I, I hope that the footage we've seen turns out to be less, um, um, jarring than it was in the trailers I've seen. But part of the reason that score, I actually when I try listening to The Lion King by itself, especially that Legacy Collection, um, I don't turn to that well very often because it's music that I think really has its most power when it's accompanying those amazing images. Like there's so many just perfect audiovisual moments of choreography in that in that '94 film where it's just he's responding to these gorgeous stylistic um, pieces of art and. To replace that with, you know, a photorealistic lion that isn't going to have the same, you know, uh, freedom to do so many expressionistic detours as the as the animated film did. I'm not sure if the the music is going to be able to. It's going to be responsible for keeping people uh, kind of grounded in this uncanny valley situation, and I'm not sure if it's possible for any score to fix that problem. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, and uh, I'm I'm with you. I think it's a score that lends itself best with the the visual aspect. I agree that it perhaps doesn't stand on its own as well as as certain other films. I don't know what's not even standing on its own. I think it's more it's designed. It's just so it's designed to be so. I think lock in step with what that film is. It's just so expertly wedded to the film. Um, it's also, I think, in part, what you hear on the on the album is different from what you hear in the film. There are, there are some. There, it's a lot synth heavier. 
and the the score tracks on both in the Legacy Collection and the '94 album. I'm guessing that Disney probably toned down some of the weirder Zimmerisms a little bit for the film. Um, but I think it's also again, it's it's something that in my head is just that film was just iconic image after iconic image. It's hard to hear the music without those images too. Yeah, that's a that's a very fair point. It's uh, it is hard to erase all those different uh, memorable visual visual cues from our our memories. So I I do want to make sure that I get some insight from you as far as some favorite or notable Disney things in your life. So at the end of every episode, uh, we conclude with some Disney related questions and uh, I call this ask my questions and get some answers. So (laughs) This includes three standard music-related questions, two standard book-related questions, and then every episode I randomize the last one uh, with just a random Disney question. And in this case, it's going to fit the theme of today to reflect on The Lion King. So, Paul, are you ready? Sure. So, first up is what Disney soundtrack did you most listen to most while growing up? Are we counting the Touchstone films um, or just the animated cell animated features? That's a fantastic question to ask. And I think it speaks to how much we love Disney. If, if you are asking that question, I, I totally, I totally um, say that's fair game. Um, well, because I, because the answer is a very Danny Elfman's nightmare before Christmas is if that counts. And that's my answer like that. I was, obsessed with that it's what made me interested in film um so it made me interested in film music and music in general um i memorized that you know as soon as i can get my hands on it i could play it in my head um i it's probably hard for me to listen to it now because the songs are at this point just like muscle memory but even the score um i'll still play it sometimes when i'm when i'm writing and it's just so unique like it's it's haunting it's it's lonely it's weird it's kind of like old german kurt vile operas and it's kind of like nina rota fellini films but it's also so different from all of that like there's nothing else really sounds like it apart from a few other danny elfman scores and even his other tim burton scores I don't think ever really got quite to that lonely haunted place that that score gets to. So that's with like by, by several miles, that's my answer to that one. That's a great answer. And for uh, those of you who love Danny Elfman, um, you should note that he is in fact a Disney legend. Uh, He was named one of them at uh, one of the recent D23 expos. So he is indeed part of the Disney family and and Nightmare Before Christmas is certainly chiefly responsible for that. Uh, That must amuse him to no end, given the sort of person he is. (laughs) (laughs) So second music-related question, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Most recently, that's a good question. um are we talking about well be prepared got stuck in my head from prepping for this thing because it always does um sure. but do you mean what most recent disney song like from their their, their more current movies it, it, you know what it comes down to however you interpret it i, I know the answer if it's just an instinctive reaction um yeah that 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 gets stuck in my head anyway so re-watching the sequence uh to, to prepare for this episode um oh yeah it's it's spinning around um up there 
which probably says not great things about me, but what can you do? Sometimes that's just what Disney music does. It reveals the darkest truths about yourself. (laughs) For me, it would be the line, no king, no king, la, 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 la. (laughs) Yeah, I love that banter. Uh, Third music-related question is, what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? That's interesting. Um, Huh. So therefore, Lion King probably is not the No, it doesn't cut it. And neither does Nightmare, if I'm being honest. I could have answered that like when it first came out, but now it's such a... It, it's found its audience you know, a dozen times over. Um, I, I'm going to answer with two, because they probably both only half count. Um, I think that Mulan has an extraordinary, as you were saying earlier, that Jerry Goldsmith's score is just fantastic. It's it's one of his best later period works. It sounds like it could accompany a actual epic at points. Um, I say it's only half a fair answer because in the film music community, it's a very popular score. So it's not especially underrated in that sense. I would say maybe a more fair answer would be The Great Mouse Detective, which I think Mancini really just... Uh, does something so fun, unique with that score. The songs aren't maybe great, but the the score itself, especially the Big Ben sequence, um, where that Victorian fanfare seeks into this dirge when they get to the clock tower, I think that's excellent. That's just pure drama in my head. Um, I'd love to see somebody expand that. Um, I wish Mancini had had a chance to do more projects like that before he passed away. Gotcha. Interesting choice. Love it. So moving on to book-related questions, and perhaps your own courses might fit into answering uh, this question. What is the most recent Disney book you've read, or Disney-related book, for that matter? What's the most recent Disney-related book I've read? Um, Shoot, like, that's a... That shouldn't be a hard question. Um, I have to pull up my my docs of uh, books read. there is a book called Demystifying Disney by Chris Palant that I assigned for um, the class I just taught. It's a very short monogram. Um, uh, it's a sort of, it's about 200 pages, and it's an academic sort of history that I assigned because it doesn't just look at Disney um, when he was alive. It goes through what that book's present was. And so it starts with seeing both Willie and it goes past the Renaissance and into the CGI digital age. Um, I don't know that I am fully persuaded by all of Palin's arguments, um, but in terms of something that will give you a good sense of here is an academic scholar trying to establish a Disney auteur identity, a Disney sort of, you know, trying to historicize what Disney as a as a brand means and how that has been reinterpreted over the past several 50, 60 decades after his death. Um, recommended very highly. I um, it's it's well worth the read. And it's even though it's a academic book, it's not it's not a difficult read. It's very, very little jargon, very engaging prose. Um, yeah, I would give that a thumbs up. That's great to know. Second question is, if you could write a Disney book on any topic, what would it be about? Gee, um, there's so many ideas that I like 
used to play with. I still am not totally, um, I still haven't abandoned the idea of making this Disney authorship, children's media authorship, post-death uh, topic work for a book. Um, I'd have to rethink it a little more after teaching the class and figure out what I want to do with it exactly. But that would be something I would love to do. I'd also like to write something about um, the history of sound in Disney's um, 1940s features, because I think that the, the sort of ideology for what synchronized sound was supposed to be for Disney in the 30s changed very dramatically after the war. And I think the challenge there would be finding somebody apart from other Disney you know, nerds like me who would care about that topic. Um, but in an ideal world, I could spend a lot of time just delving into that. Um, I'd love to write about the Disney TV series in the 50s, Disneyland, et cetera, and the way sound worked in that. I did a bit of that for the dissertation, but to explore that more uh, in depth, all, all sorts of threads that if you're interested in something and like studying it, you want to explore. Um, um, yeah, that was a that was a overly um, long-winded answer to a very short question, but yeah, that's what I would do if I could. That's quite all right. Hey, you know what? Might as well write several books in the process. <laughs> if they're imaginary, then why not? <laughs> cr cr create a series. Hypothetical, and yeah, I, I will say I think I really like the notion of like D Disney sound in some of the early and uh, early television series. I think that would be quite unique like even like you know and you talk about like the disneyland tv series and, and davy crockett and zorro and those types of shows good pretty it, cool in some ways it's more fascinating to write about than to actually uh sit through sometimes in terms of some of the earliest creakiest uh tv specials but i just think it's fascinating um so yeah thank you yeah, I think it'd be awesome. And I will point um, listeners in case they are really interested in music from Disney's earlier animated features. There is a, a nice title by James Bone that came out a couple of years ago called Music in Disney's Animated Features, uh, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs to the Jungle Book. So that goes into some of the elements of, of many of the uh, main productions from the studio during those decades. That's great. Um, but the final question for you is random, and it's related to our topic, The Lion King. Paul, do you have a favorite Lion King character, and who might that be? It's got to be Scar. I, and by the way, I, I will give him this. He gets, I don't want to say he gets a bad rap, because he does kill his brother, and he tries to kill his nephew. That's hard to defend. But the system of governance that the lions seem to have running in which the circle of life protects everyone except for the hyenas who for some reason don't count as animals that need to be respected and are kind of shuffled off to these barren wastelands scar's big policy of integrating hyenas into society i think that is pretty hard to 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 speak against now it turns out that they it's poorly managed he probably could have like tried to control their their impulses but in terms of trying to break the wheel um uh denarius style which maybe is maybe not a great reference anymore after last night's episode um or whenever this airs they'll be over when this airs i think that scar has some some platforms that deserve further consideration i don't think the lions have it all figured out
So I think your next book could be a case for stock for scar <laughs> that's what i'll do um i'll start with a think piece actually scar was right and go from there <laughs> uh, you know it's really interesting you made that point about the hyenas because i know when watching the film more as more from the lens of an adult i think there's definitely an element and i'm not sure to what degree this was um intentional but the notion of like classism and and racism in the lion king yeah i i have to imagine I don't think it's intentional, but I do think it's ideology that Disney like writers haven't really thought to question at that point. Um, I wonder how that's going to play in the remake, in which there has been more time for people to think about these sorts of questions. Um, it, if they're trying to replay the narrative where the hyenas are in this, I don't want to say ghetto, but that's the only way to really refer to it. Um, then that's going to play differently, I think, in 2019 than it did in 1994, when they could kind of get away with stuff that on further reflection was kind of problematic. Yeah, it's a very deep film. And yeah, I'd be interested in that too, because after all, who would want to live in an area called the Elephant Graveyard? I think that would be, that, that sounds very dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no wonder they're so, I think that the fact that those hyenas have a sense of humor speaks well of them. They are coping with a very difficult situation. Indeed, indeed. Well, on that note, uh, that wraps up uh, Notably Disney. But uh, I want to make sure in in case uh, listeners want to get connected with you, what might be a good way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, you can uh, contact my Twitter handle um, is uh, Paul underscore the underscore Cody. Cody is spelled Um, C-O-T-E. yeah, uh, you can direct message me there. You can you can at me, etc. Uh, I always love to hear from new people. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on this. Uh, my my pleasure, Paul. My my apologies for mispronouncing your last name. Oh, first, okay. but... I, I honestly don't. So I'll I'll end on this weird anecdote. My name it's spelled C O T E. It's French Canadian. Initially, it was pronounced Cote. When whoever, whichever relative moved to New England in the you know 20th century, made it Cody to Americanize it phonetically, it probably should be Coach. So in a way, they're all right. Um, I tried at one point to just tell people when they asked me how to pronounce it, I'd say, you know, however you want, they're all correct in a way. That apparently really makes people angry. <laughs> they really want you to have a one right way to pronounce your last name. So. Cody is the closest I have to a right answer. Um, so once again, like, no, Paul underscore the underscore Cody, C-O-T-E. Um, Cote or Cote, I answer to those two. Good to know. Good to know. Well, it was, it's been a pleasure to have you on. And I think we all can be prepared for the new uh, adaptation uh, of The Lion uh, King uh, in theaters July 19th. And in the meantime, listeners, please do check out uh, any soundtrack version of the lion king but especially the legacy collection if you really want to hear some of those demos and and lost recordings and um other iterations of the music but thank you again paul such a such a pleasure to have you on and and thanks for diving into this with me it was it was so much fun thanks again to paul for joining me on the show it was great to talk with him and might i encourage all of you to definitely consider purchasing the Walt Disney Records Legacy Collection, The Lion King, from 
released back in 2014, as I mentioned on the main episode. It's great to reflect back on the original, and that is another way of channeling that passion for The Lion King. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.